You've seen the movie Cars, yeah? I have, yeah, years ago. <laughs> There's a scene in the movie Cars that just lays out a concept I want to talk to you about. Can you hear that, by the way? Yeah. Look at that. Look, and they're driving right by. They don't even know what they're missing. Well, it didn't used to be that way. In case you haven't seen the movie Cars, it's a Pixar movie where all the characters are, you guessed it, talking cars. The main character is this cocky big city race car who gets himself stuck in a small rundown town off Route 66. And in the end, the cocky race car learns something about himself and our country's connection to the road. He is humbled by his journey and he helps revitalize the dying town. How great would it have been to see this place in its heyday? Oh, can't tell you how many times I've dreamed of that. But one of these days, we'll find a way to get it back on the map. Cars is a road trip movie that is very nostalgic for a specific version of America. One of the traps we fall into when we're looking at road trips is they're all about this quest. Today, I'm talking to Alan Pietrobon. He's a historian and professor at Trinity Washington University, and he teaches a course about the great American road trip. We want to, like, find ourselves. And these air quotes of the real America, that somehow this notion that America is more real somewhere else than you are. We're going to go back, whether it's this trope of the small town America is, like, the real America. That's what we should see on our road trips. And all of these writers who set off from, from Jack Kerouac on, to, you know, they're trying to find something pure about America, and they never do. Because this America we've created on our road trip myth is just that. It's a myth that like America is America everywhere, that it's all part of this country. Greetings from somewhere. I'm Zach Mack. And today we are hitting the road and analyzing the asphalt. Looking at the history of roads in this country, the legend of Route 66, and the tireless search for the quote unquote real America. This is part one of the myth of the American road trip. All right, so in order to demystify America's travel narratives, we have to look back to a time before the car. Back to America's unfortunate roots in expansion, colonialism, and, well, racism. America is in this unique position that it's a new country compared to Europe and Asia. Again, this is Professor Alan Pietrobon. It's this expanse of land that is certainly not unpopulated like the early settlers called it, this you know, un uninhabited wilderness. We, of course, know that there were millions, tens of millions of Native Americans out there. But these white settlers, part of the driving narrative of America is that it's this constant expansion. We, or they rather, were constantly moving west, trying to expand this territory. So travel is what animated American society. In the early 1900s, the Model T Ford came along and for the first time gave Americans an affordable option to drive a car. After that, much of America's road trip history is driven by the development and expansion of roads. Right after World War I in 1919, when the U.S. military, to try to experiment with these new vehicle technologies, which are brand new, they embark on a cross-country trip from the gate of the White House, Washington, D.C., out to San Francisco. And this driving across the country in 1919 takes 61 days. And 26 men are injured on this expedition. Like, it's, it's dangerous. There are no roads yet, uh, to speak of, outside of large towns 
And even then, they're not paved. It's mostly gravel or mud roads. So that starts the moment of the U.S. government realizing we need roads. Vehicles are the wave of the future. It's after 1926 that the federal government enacts the Federal Highway Act now that is we are, as a government initiative, going to build highways uh, to help connect cities. Are people re-employed in private industries? One of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal programs is we should build more roads um, to allow people to travel easier and not just highways. We should build tourist roads um, to allow people to see the nation as a tourist activity. We have become the nation on wheels with more motorized mobility than ever dreamed of before. Now, car travel has exploded, but highways haven't kept up. And here's the crisis. Two-thirds of the way is now obsolete, worn out, inadequate in width. And there is a crisis after World War II that the highways are just jammed, clogged. Car ownership between 1945 and 1955 has doubled to 52 million people in America now own cars. And so it's Eisenhower by 1956 who inaugurates the federal interstate system of controlled access high-speed highways. This is the American dream of freedom on wheels, an automotive age traveling on time-saving superhighways. And that then takes, in just really a generation and a half, this trip cross-country that once took, in 1919, 61 days, you can now do it in like four. <laughs> you know, if you're really driving across country on I-80 or whatever, the, you know, I-70 across the, the U.S. So there's this incredible element. And then now that car travel is easy and convenient and fast and cheap and cars have gotten more reliable, um, that then spurs even more car travel. So it is World War II that sparks this perfect confluence of events. America has decided to arm herself for protection against any aggressor. And the assembly lines of the automobile industry now become assembly lines of defense. The war means that these auto manufacturers, which switch to war production, you know, Chrysler builds aircraft, Ford builds tanks, but they greatly expand their manufacturing capacity. And when the war ends, they have all this extra capacity, which makes it cheaper for them to mass produce cars, too. So they mass produce huge numbers of cars, new post-war designs using a lot of the technologies they discovered during the war. There is the rise of the middle class. People have good wages, so they're able to afford cars. But there's a difference between affording a car and then actually buying one. You've got to have a justification to need that vehicle. And what else happens driven by World War II is this move to the suburbs. 20 or so million people in the 10 years after the war move out of big cities and move into the suburbs. People who relied on public transit or walked to work frequently, now if you live on average 30 miles away, you need a vehicle uh, to get into the city. You know, three weeks ago, I couldn't have accepted that invitation. Like so many people these days, we live in the suburbs, and Dave needs the car every day for business. Americans moving out to the suburbs who probably didn't own cars before this have to be convinced that a car is something you want. A car is something you need. 
When he was gone, I was practically a prisoner in my own home. I couldn't get out to see my friends, couldn't take part in PTA activities. I couldn't even shop when I wanted to. I had to wait till Thursday night after Dave brought the car home. And that idea of the two-car family was new. But that's all changed now. You could convince people to buy a car so the man could commute into work, but like this second car for the wife to just putter around all day was something that, again, people had to be convinced was, was acceptable, was okay, was something you should do. So people are buying cars and bigger houses and are adjusting quite nicely to their plush new lives in the suburbs. But not everyone is moving to the burbs. These are specific people who are moving for a specific reason. And to put it plainly, these are middle-class white people who want to move away from black people. This is the migration referred to as white flight. People leaving inner cities, which are seen as crime infested and in which then like this urban squalor, all of which is synonymous with black um, in, this, in this racist way. There's redlining that is preventing African-Americans from moving out to the suburbs or owning homes in the cities. And so white flight is a huge uh, driving of this in, in the 19, uh, well, 40s, 50s, 60s. Now that we're going to build a national highway network, where are we going to put those highways? Because then as now, land is limited in places like New York, D.C., Boston, where the cities are already there. You have to make choices. And the choices they make generally are to put these highways in black neighborhoods, or at least in lower income neighborhoods. They're going to tear down all these houses. They refer to it as slum clearance, which is seen as a good thing. Oh, it's this slum. We're going to benefit both. We're going to move these people out of this terrible neighborhood and build a brand new highway so that everyone benefits. Highway will be a good barrier between your neighborhood and the adjacent black neighborhood, that it'll cut it off and there you'll feel safe. It'll keep out these undesirable elements. So there's a lot of racism uh, tied up in highway planning decisions that we don't often think about. And all of this is to then further help white people who have fled to the suburbs get into their downtown office quickly, easily, and then get back home um, at the end of the day. To do that, they've destroyed a black neighborhood. So the black neighborhoods are being decimated to make way for this new white way of life. The post-war middle-class family is prospering, and this is where we see Americans starting to hit the road more than ever. The American road trip as we know it is beginning to take shape. So it's, I would say, by the 60s, by the 70s, people are looking at cross-country trips as being the big adventure because it's now accessible to many more people. Yeah, so it seems like, yeah, cars are affordable. All of a sudden, you can, you can drive around quickly and get, and get anywhere in the country in a relatively short time. You can get there safely, reliably, uh, and there's and there's accommodations along the way to to support those those travel ambitions, if you're white, right? Yeah, if you're white and if you're of a certain class. So part of why it becomes possible in the 1960s is, um, yeah, white people are making a lot more money, and the boomer generation, which by 1964, those kids who were born right after the war are turning 18, uh, they're getting their license. And they are born in an era that has more prosperity than ever before. Now, 
if you're not white, I mean, even today, but especially before the Civil Rights Act passes in 1964, road tripping is not this happy-go-lucky, fun-loving thing. It's not a leisure activity that you do. Road tripping um, often, if you're African-American, is you have a destination and you want to get there as quickly as possible, as safely as possible. And a lot of the road trips, if you're African-American, are people who live in the North who have left the South during the 30s, 40s, 50s, during just great migration. And they're heading back to family in the South over the summer to, to visit back at home. And so they're planning their trips to figure out where, how they're going to stop, where they're going to stop. You have to think about even where can I get food? What restaurants are going to serve me? It's not just as easy as pulling into a McDonald's, which doesn't yet exist nationwide in the 50s. So African-Americans are often bringing their food with them so they don't have to stop at a roadside diner, which can be fraught. So for people of color, road tripping is often full of anxiety. You're a long way from home. Oh, we're just passing through, taking a little bathroom break, sir, is all. Any of you all know where the sun downtown is? Yes, sir, we do. Well, this is the Sundown County. You have these towns that are referred to as sundowner towns, where it's like African-Americans are just not allowed to be in after dark. You have towns where the police would patrol and sort of pull you over and run you out of town if you were black driving through this majority white town. You have, you know, harassment by police, you know, giving you tickets that are, you know, unwarranted, but you don't actually have any power. So all of these things people had to contend with right up to murder, right? right up to violence. To account for the danger and unpredictability, Black Americans are forced to get resourceful. One of the ways they did that was by circulating a travel guide. You've probably heard of it by now. It's called The Green Book. I think it's 1936. Victor Green publishes this book. He realizes that travel is fraught for African Americans. You don't know where... Uh, is going to be safe to stop at a restaurant. You don't know what hotels are going to serve you. So it's basically this guidebook published by and for African Americans where they've reviewed, it's kind of like the, I don't know, the, the Rick Steves travel guide of, of today. Like these places are good, these places are not good, here's where you should go. And so this becomes, I don't even want to say popular, I think it becomes necessary for African Americans traveling. Part of the reason that African Americans are choosing to drive is so that they aren't subject to the humiliations of the segregated transit systems where they have to, on Greyhound, sit at the back of the bus. On trains, they get second-class tickets. That a car does provide enormous freedom if you're a person of color, but still anxiety, right? But driving is still, you are in control now. You're not subject to these segregation rules. In the second part of the series, we're actually going to get into this a bit more. I'll be speaking with a couple of writers about how these experiences for Black Americans are still present in road trips today. And we've seen a couple of recent examples in TV and film that speak to this, like Queen and Slim, there was Green Book, HBO's Lovecraft Country. But largely, this experience has been overlooked. And so has the experience of women. You know, women have always been sort of excluded from this road trip narrative. We have precious few books uh, about female travelers, and the ones that we do have are often about the dangers that women face on the road, right? 
Something I was surprised to hear is that many of the travel stories written in the 1800s were actually written by women. Apparently, while men walked alongside covered wagons driving oxen, it was the women inside those wagons who wrote all the stories. But after that time period, we don't hear a lot from or about women on the road. There's uh, an American writer, Vanessa Veskla, who writes about this, or at least she mentions this notion that a man on the road is solitary and like thoughtful and discovering himself. But a woman on the road is alone. And that's very different in our like society that it's, you know, what are you doing out here? Are you okay? And often a woman on the road is portrayed as running from something. She's sort of shirking her social duty. She's impure. What, what does she have out there? Like, what is, what is she running from? And then it just it would be this scorn heaped upon them. So our structures of the patriarchy have, have denied us many of these, what could be rich narratives from female travelers. There's more now, but historically, we talk about all the famous books of the 50s and 60s, and I can't think of many female writers who are included there. You robbed the store? You robbed the goddamn store? Well, we needed the money. Oh, not like I killed anybody, for God's sake. Emma. I mean, the famous, the movie, Thelma and Louise, is they go off on what they hope is going to be a fun adventure. They get attacked by a man. They spend the entire rest of the time on the run until... Let's keep going. I don't want to spoil it if any of your listeners have, you know, have not seen the movie, until they kill themselves, you know, by driving off a cliff. Go! The most famous female-centered road trip narrative is a story of tragedy and, 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 and horror. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're driving deeper into road trip mythology right through the main street of America. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're back, and we're unpacking the myth of America's road trip. And there is no symbol of the American road trip more iconic than the Will Rogers Highway, a.k.a. the Mother Road, a.k.a. Route 66. Travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. It was. So real quick, we have to go back to the movie Cars, because aside from being one of Disney's most valuable merchandising opportunities, Cars really gets at the heart of this enduring nostalgia for Route 66 and old America. Yeah, 40 years ago, that interstate down there didn't exist. Really? Yeah. Back then, 
cars came across the country a whole different way. How do you mean? Well, the road didn't cut through the land like that interstate. It moved with the land, you know? It rose, it fell, it curved. The movie pines after Route 66 and Radiator Springs, this lovely town that has been passed by by the interstate, and it laments modern day when big city folk and speedy race cars forget to slow down. What happened? The town got bypassed just to save 10 minutes of driving. Yeah. We hear this all the time about like this draw towards Route 66, the way things used to be a slower, more pure time in America. And my opinion on this, you know, that notion that the, high, the interstate bypassed to save 10 minutes of driving, my response is, well, thank you. Route 66 was a terrible road. If you had been driving in the 1950s to go from Chicago to LA, you know, if you did the whole route, it would take you weeks. Every little town you came up to, the speed limit slows to 25 miles an hour. There's traffic lights. There's congestion. People who generally were driving in the 1950s, that was a huge inconvenience. The fact that the, the road followed the land and had, you know, went through every little one-horse town, that you couldn't make good time uh, on these routes. And what's fascinating is we just as, as humans always have this tendency to look back on the past and glorify it as being somehow better, more, more innocent than our age. And right now we're just in this generational gap where we're looking back at the 1950s as being that time in American history where we were once great and had this different way of life. The people in the 1950s, they were looking back at the 1880s. This is the reason why Route 66 has a lot of Native American themed attractions. This era that we see as a golden age, they, there's this famous quote I love that like people who live through a golden age complain about how yellow it is. They're getting annoyed, looking back, oh, things were so much better in the old west of the 1880s with those wagon trains. You were, you were connected to the land, not on this bland, annoying, frustrating highway. So it's just the way we look at history is tainted by our modernism in a way. And this is a really good point. We have all this nostalgia for how things used to be, but there's a couple things that are easy to lose sight of. One, there's a certain amount of privilege that it takes to enjoy the past. And two, a lot of this stuff just isn't as great as we think it was. The things we idealize of the greasy spoon diner, that's what I want. Yes, some of them are okay. A lot of them were garbage. You'd pull into this unknown diner, you didn't have Yelp to tell you if it's any good or not, and you'd get this terrible food. You pull into this motel that's, you know, Joe's Motel, and it was bed bugs infesting, you know, everything. That things were unreliable. You didn't have this uniformity. Eventually, the inconsistent experience of the road gets addressed. Now, because of that, the car and chain hotels are interlinked. They rise at the same time because people are demanding a reliable, I know what to expect out of a McDonald's, I know what to expect out of a Motel 6 brand. So they were pleased, excited when the interstate comes along because it cuts so much time off their travel. It was so much easier. They could stop at like regular intervals. Unfortunately, this is where America overcorrects and doubles down on sameness. The flip side, though, is I actually hate driving the interstates today because they are just so cripplingly boring. At every exit, 
you can guarantee there's a McDonald's, an Exxon station, a Holiday Inn, and, you know, all the other plastic roof chain franchises. So you're not, you're not experiencing anything if you can drive from New York to Los Angeles and eat at the same, exactly, literally, the same chemical foods on both places. So there is, and whenever, whenever I travel, there is this tendency of mine to, to get off the interstates, to travel the back roads. Like, I do want to support your local business, right? Not some giant national chain. So traveling across America by car is a wonderful way to see the country. And that is ruined if you're traveling on the interstate and eating only at the chain restaurant. All right, let's drive this baby home, shall we? With a clear understanding of America's history on the roads, we have a clear understanding of its myth-making and why so many of these travel narratives are left grasping at something that might not really be there. If we're trying to project these romanticized visions of the American people that we're going to discover, I think many of them end on this sense of melancholy that these authors never find what they're looking for. It's never like, I did this amazing road trip, I found everything I wanted, I'm enlightened now. You're trying to fill this emptiness, but you don't know why you're feeling empty. And so you'd set off in the hopes that like, you'll discover something about yourself, about the country, about whatever along the way, and you rarely do because it's, you know, if you haven't identified what's making you feel empty in the first place, just running from that uh, is not gonna help <laughs> usually. Despite the persistent myth of the American road trip being just that, a myth, it doesn't mean driving across America isn't a journey worth taking. So many of my favorite travel memories are from driving through various parts of the country and learning more about history. The good, the bad, and especially the ugly. Because acknowledging those original sins and understanding that just because America isn't flawless, it doesn't mean it isn't beautiful or worth driving through. I do want to get a bit of culture. It's partly why we travel and what makes road tripping so amazing in America. Unlike any other country, this I would say we are unique in, is that because America is so huge, but also because America has such a varied climate, right? you've got deserts to six foot tall snowdrifts if up in the Northeast. You've got oceans, you've got tropical areas of the country, you've got tundra and forests. And so the critique often from Europeans is like, oh, Americans don't know anything. You, you know, 11% of you only have passports. It's because you don't need a passport. You can experience everything you want out of travel without leaving the US. This is The American Road Trip. that's the show we are coming back next week with part two that is going to be all about the present and future of the american road trip we're going to look at what's going on today and what a road trip might look like in 50 years big thanks to alan piatrabon for stopping by i want to thank Acast and lightbox jewelry for all their continued support my man daniel turek mixed and mastered and helped sound design this episode Original music and scoring by a mystery man. Original art by Alicia Tenoyan. Legal by Sammy the Bull Alcabez. This episode was produced by me, Zach Mack. 
And yo, it would be dope if you rated and reviewed and shared this podcast with a friend. If you rate it and review it, it helps other people you don't know find it. And obviously, if you share it, it helps people that you do know find it. So please help me out. It all matters. Trust me. And if you haven't already subscribed, go ahead and tap that button. If you want to follow along with the show or check out a newsletter or leave me a voicemail talking about a road trip you may have taken, sharing a travel story, you can do that. All the links to my social, the voicemail phone number, and to the newsletter are all in the show notes. Check that out. All right, we'll see you next week. Safe travels. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.